are coming into 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I just want to give you a bit of a heads up. Moving into next week, we are going to actually go into a kind of a sub-series where we're just going to, you may have noticed up to this point, we've been very quickly getting through the book of Corinthians. The, the correspondence that's going back and forth between Paul and this church that he was a part of kind of founding and he spent a year and a half of his life with. And we're going to slow down as we get into chapters 12 through 14 over the summer. The bulk of our summer is going to be given uh, to this subject matter. And we're going to actually look at what does it look like to be a spirit-filled church. And so today we're going to focus on what does it look like when the church gathers together And then over the summer, we're going to look at what does it look like to be a spirit-filled church. And I think it's significant. I I think it's kind in the Lord's timing and his leading of this church that next Sunday, we're going to actually begin in Acts chapter 2 as we celebrate what would traditionally be known on the church calendar as Pentecost Sunday. Liturgically, it would be known as, as like one of the many celebrations of the feasts, and we're going to get into a little bit of that as we look at Acts chapter 2. So if you enjoy reading ahead, uh, go ahead and read Acts chapter 2. We're going to talk about what it looks like to be a spirit-filled church, and then we're going to come back to uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I'm excited for a, a couple of guests that are going to follow that. I believe Louis Seifert will be preaching, and then Mike Gilland as well, as my family takes some time off. And I just wanted to give you a little bit of a heads up where we're heading in the, in the weeks to come. But perhaps you've noticed that so far we've seen Paul kind of addressing some really big ideas and really big issues that were going on in the church in Corinth. And we come to another one of those today. We come to uh, one of kind of the fourth of five main blocks that exist in the book of 1 Corinthians. We've seen him address up to this point unity and leadership in chapters 1 through 4. We've seen him look at sex, singleness, and marriage in chapters 5 through 7. We've seen him talk about food in chapters 8 through 10. And in the next few chapters, the, the subject is going to be actually what we're gathered in right now, what we call corporate worship or the gathered church. That is when individuals who have been rescued by the blood of Jesus Christ, get together and celebrate his good work. We minister one to another, even as we just experienced in worship. We we have time where we submit our lives to the Lord because what we're doing in this meeting, we want it to be a model for the way that we're called to live our lives every moment of every day throughout the rest of the week. But in the midst of that, in the church of Corinth, there were some things going on that Paul needed to get to. And so we actually just start with very simply the first verse, which, which in your scripture, depending on if you have a, an app or a Bible, it may actually be very easy to pass over. It very simply says this, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul's saying, look at my life as I, as I look to Christ's life. And it could be very easy because that kind of ends out a section that he, he was talking about at the end of chapter 10, where he's discussing the subject of discipleship. But what is he telling us? Actually, all of us should be able to say that about one another. Be an imitator of me as I imitate the life of Christ. And so we we see again that discipleship is something that God has designed to be at the very center of the Christian life. Now, I addressed some of that last Sunday. But as we get into the next section, if you think about some of the issues that the church were facing, and actually we're getting ready to read about an issue that I'm not sure that there's a ton of clarity on exactly what was going on in the church, 
It might be surprising to realize he's addressing something in the church, but he's doing that starting with an encouragement. Now, this is not the encouragement sandwich, right? This isn't like, I'm going to say something to kind of gas you up, and I'm going to say something like, you need to fix this, and then I'm going to gas you up again. I'm going to encourage you at the end, right? It's not the encouragement sandwich with it's like, what a discouraging piece of meat. (laughs) That's not what Paul's doing. Paul's actually thanking them for asking the question to begin with. And so he begins with an encouragement. And can we look at God's word together? 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now your Bible may say the teachings. Uh, your Bible's not broken. Uh, we're going to look at that in just a moment. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For man ought not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have the symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God." Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And may God bless the reading of his word. And may the Spirit help the hearer to understand. This is where I feel like I should skip notes, except I think that would be dangerous this morning. Perhaps if you just joined the church, you're just thinking, maybe I should have heard this sermon first. (laughs) What is he going to say about that? May the Lord help me this morning. Let's start where Paul does. He starts by encouraging the church. He emphasizes the importance of remembering and traditions. Now, those concepts are actually going to prove important later in this chapter. I think that those, some of the concepts that he covers here uh, in speaking about head coverings and, and the role of women in the church, he actually comes back around to at the end of chapter 14 in this section, this larger section on the gathered church and what that should look like. And like I said just a moment ago, your Bibles may say teachings instead of traditions, but I think traditions is is a helpful word there for this reason. It includes teaching, to be sure. It is a part of that handing down from one generation to another, to be sure. But traditions is helpful because Scripture talks about traditions in a few different ways. I think about my own life. Uh, Some years ago when Stephanie and I were dating, uh, we, we actually went through the courtship process I did survive kissing, dating, goodbye, and 
I, I think about it like this. Her, she was away for a wedding of a friend in Atlanta. And it was a Saturday. Actually, it wasn't uh, in terms of when it happened in the year. It was just a couple of months ago when this particular Saturday would have been. And, and she was the maid of honor in her friend's wedding. And she was up in Atlanta. And so I was aware of this because we were kind of an item. We weren't like engaged. Uh, but we were definitely an item, and I think everybody in the church knew it because I made it kind of obvious, and that got us in a lot of trouble, and all these kinds of things. And as she was away, as the maid of honor, she caught the bouquet. So when she came home, she said, well, Dad, I guess that settles it. I'm next. Because that's tradition. My father-in-law, Mike, said, well, that's traditional hogwash. <laughs> Meaning it's nonsense. That's traditional nonsense. And I've been living in the good of traditional hogwash for over 24 years now. I'm grateful for that. You clap, but a year to the day on the following year, Stephanie and I were engaged. I dropped to a knee and asked her to marry me the same Saturday exactly a year later. So traditional hogwash or not, it worked for me. (laughs) And I'm so grateful but we can think about traditions in a lot of different ways, can't we? Maybe your mind is singing the song from the fiddler of the roof, and if it's not, if it wasn't, it is now. But we can talk about tradition as if it's truth, and it's not always truth. Matter of fact, when uh, you know, I was kind of a, a, bo- a boy born and raised in the South, and, and I'm not going to get into all kinds of racial overtones about that, but there were certain things that I was taught as tradition, like you need to be a part of the clean plate club. That's tradition, to finish your meal. It's tradition to, to when I walk into a room, I, I think this is a strange one for me personally, because of my size, it's not uncommon for me to walk into a room and just all of a sudden, nobody will know my name, but they'll just refer to me as boss. That's weird. But those are kind of like these little rhythms and rituals that can even be regional at times, but it just becomes a part of life, and you, and you almost become blind to those things happening, don't you? But there are times that we conflate tradition with truth, and I think that what we're seeing here is that there was something very specific going on in the church in Corinth, but let me admit to you, I don't know exactly what that is. As a matter of fact, scholars are varied on what they say was going on in the church, I don't think that's what Paul's point is in writing to them. What he's telling them is, let's raise it up a notch beyond tradition to truth. And so Paul actually affirms truths that we see in God's Word. And he does that in a way that makes it culturally relevant. There's a lesson for us in that. We're going to look at it in just a moment. But when we think about tradition, let's look at how Scripture talks about some of the traditions in other ways. We might think of Matthew chapter 15, where a tradition that was being handed on was actually something that was bad. Matthew 15, 2 through 3 says this, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Hang on. Jesus is saying something here. He's addressing something that was going on. This is not a message against hand washing. This is a lesson on taking the things of men and elevating them above the things of God. 
That's what Paul's after here. What about in Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, where it's something that's actually contrary to the will of God? Mark chapter 7, 6 through 8 says this, And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? That's a great way to start a sentence off. If you'd like to resolve a conflict in your home, start there. Don't do that. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching doctrines as the commandments of men. What is he saying there? He's saying the things, that are, the things that are of man are being raised up to say that they are the key truths of the gospel. So our traditions must be informed by truth. The last verse there says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Now here in 1 Corinthians 11, it's actually something that Paul is affirming in the church. He's, he's saying it's good for them to be kind of wrestling with these questions. And he's thanking them for bringing, them in, bringing him into the, the concept. But I don't want us to miss in the midst of saying, what in the world was going on in the church in Corinth? I don't know. I know that Paul answers their question with timeless truths of the gospel that we see throughout Scripture. He answers those questions with the timeless truths that go all the way back to creation. The biblical principle is very simply this, that the traditions of men should be weighed and maybe even avoided. The traditions of men should be weighed and possibly avoided because the traditions of God are what the people of God are called to observe. I've mentioned throughout this series that 1 Corinthians 15 becomes kind of a bit of a key for us to understand some of these larger sections In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture what Paul is reminding us of here is what is most important so we're not going to dip our toe into the controversy of head coverings but we need to understand some of the key themes of what Paul's actually addressing here he is addressing some things in the church and we're going to see this in the second half of 1 Corinthians 11 as well he's addressing this idea of self-promotion kind of flaunting their wealth, flaunting what it was that they had in this way that was even affecting communion. It was affecting communion. There was this self-promotion that was happening in the way that they celebrated communion. You just think, that's gross. Yeah, that's why Paul's addressing it. He's saying, don't do that. There was this sense of unbiblical individualism that was going on in the church. And when we talk about individualism, we can kind of throw, we can kind of banter that term around when we talk about worldliness and the schemes of the enemy and all these types of things. But this was an unhealthy independence that was being expressed in the church. That was happening in communion. It was happening in the gathered church as well, in the relationship between men and women. And there was also this, thirdly, self-promotion, independence, and then lastly, the neglect of others' good. The neglect of others' good. These are some of the things that are happening in the midst of this. And Paul, in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, is going to explicitly say that it's only through the resurrection and spirit-enabled power of the gospel that these patterns of sin can be displaced in love. That's the only way that 
that these things can be displaced. It's the only way that we can actually come together in unity by understanding the key tenets of the gospel. And can I say this morning, I appreciate that you understood that I was joking at the end of reading this passage, but don't passages remind us, passages like this remind us why it is that we approach the word of God in humility. I didn't grow up in Corinth, I grew up in Pine Hills. I don't know what this cultural reference is. And so I'm I'm not looking at it, trying to understand that, but I'm also not glazing past it as if it doesn't have something to say to inform the way that I live for God today. And isn't that our tendency when we don't approach Scripture in in humility? We, We tend to either gloss over or we start to argue with Scripture. Asking questions of Scripture is not a dangerous thing because it will answer. Talking to one another about it isn't a bad thing. God's word has answers. As a matter of fact, that's what the church in Corinth is being commended for doing. I would actually encourage you to do the same. Don't take my word for what I'm saying this morning. Look at this for yourself. And then ask the question. Follow up with, I can learn from those things. Good gospel messages are shaped by those conversations. And that's what's happening here with the church in Corinth. So he's commending them even as he is bringing adjustment to their understanding. And here's what's clear about Paul's instructions. There are two aspects of his instruction without getting into who's the head of whom and what's happening here. There are two very clear instructions that kind of come from this as we see these scriptures together. That Christ and his Father are united as one. They are bound together closely in the same way that a head is to the body. It's bound together closely. That's, that's vital for the health of the body. That The head of Christ is God, is what it said in verse 3. But here's here's the truth, and here's the, the point that I would want to draw our attention to most clearly today. Christ is the head of his church. So let me put it in a local context. Christ is the head of Metro Life Church. May we all look to him together. Do not outsource your looking to Christ to me. Let's look to Christ together because he is the head of the church. He goes on to use the illustration of marriage. And then he kind of broadens it to where it says that in all of your earthly relationships between men and women, there is this submission that happens. And you may just think, hang on, Chris. And this is where I want to be clear. Scripture informs Scripture. So we're not going to argue in order to help Scripture try to conform to the culture of the day. We're going to let Scripture informed the culture of our hearts and minds. So what do we see throughout Scripture? We see throughout Scripture in Ephesians chapter 4. Excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 5, at the end of chapter 4, the beginning of 5, where he's talking about the marital relationship between men and women. That it's not just submission, that the man is to be the head of the house in a marital relationship and that women are and the wives are to submit to their husbands and I know that that's an offensive message but can I say this the verse just before that passage says this that you submit to one another mutually how in love so when we're looking back to creation order this is not a demeaning message it releases us to the things that God has called us to and created us for from the beginning Now, we've spent some time on that over the years. Actually, over the last year and a half, we've addressed this subject four different times. I'm not going to spend a ton of time there today other than to say that the second thing 
that Paul draws our attention to the most. He reaches back to creation and he draws it into this illustration. Now notice that he is doing that in a way that speaks to what it is that's going on in the church that is a distortion of God's good design. And he reaches back to the creation account and he says, let's remember something. That God took his hands and he, and he put it into the dust that he himself had created and he formed man and he breathed life into him. And then when he noticed that he was alone, he said, that's not good. And I don't know what that looked like. Was Adam walking around talking to himself? Asking himself questions like a crazy person? I have no idea. But he looked at it and he said, that's not good. And then he creates woman differently. He puts the man to sleep and he removes the rib from Adam. And he puts it in the woman so that she would be created to walk by his side. We are equal in the eyes of the Lord. But we have been created for different roles to glorify his name. And to glorify his good design. I will leave it there. I am sorry if that leaves you wanting for more. I look forward to chatting with you about that in the future. But can I ask you a question? What fruit should this produce? Our understanding of this, what fruit should that produce? It's certainly not a home where a man can just domineer over a woman. I want to speak very clearly against that. But men... Are your wives producing the fruit that they've been called to? Are your wives being filled and equipped to use the gifts that God has given them? And if not, why not? Let me give you an example. There's a a women's meeting that happens tonight. They're going to watch the movie War Room. You may in just a moment begin to smell the smell of popcorn wafting through here. We're not going to have an exclusive showing of Top Gun Maverick, as much fun as that would be. They're going to watch War Room tonight. And here's my concern. Some of the wives in this church may be going into into their prayer closet because they need to pray for their husbands. Are you that husband? Are you releasing your wives? Maybe it's not even about the fifth Sunday. Are you, are you showing up to community group? Are you, are you taking advantage of the context to grow in the ways, personally, as well as for your spouse, in the ways that God has given us as a part of this church community? Are you releasing your wife to be a part of that? Are you actually encouraging her to be a part of that? Are you taking the steps? It's not babysitting when they're, in, when they're your own kids. I learned that lesson the hard way. It's just called being dad. But are you doing the things to release them to grow spiritually? But here's another concern. Are they growing spiritually and then coming home to a crappy husband? Because that's not biblical either. So I have a question. What's the fruit of your own life? Don't just examine the fruit of your wife's life and be like, no, no, she is one thing. I've been saying it to her for years. Don't be that guy. Is the fruit of your own life what God's called it to be? And if not, why not? Are you taking advantage of the men's meetings that happen on a monthly basis? Are you leading your family to be in a community, in a community group where you can learn and grow how to be a a better husband, a better father, a better follower of Jesus Christ? 
Is your own life showing the fruit that it should be? And, and if it's not, why not? I, I would actually invite you to show me how that's happening outside of community because I think that's outside of God's good design. I think that's a point of the beginning of this passage. Christ is the head of you. But if the authority in your home ends at you, that is wrong. And I would invite you to show me the fruit. And if you cannot show me the fruit, then show up. Show up in the contexts. Show up on Sunday morning. Show up in community. Maybe even do both. Show me and show up. All right. The Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Notice that he started with the encouragement about asking the question, what it was that was going on in that cultural context. And now he says, I actually do not commend you when it comes to this. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. It's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part... For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? I don't think that's a dramatic reading. I think that's actually what he was saying. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord, and this may get familiar here. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. That the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it is not for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Well, that's great. Paul's vague in two different ways in this particular passage. We don't know what those other things are, but we do know what he speaks very specifically to. What's the main issue that's being captured here? That there were some in Corinth who were treating the Lord's Supper as an opportunity for selfish indulgence. They were amplifying the divisions in the church, and specifically here what he's addressing is those who are rich and those who are poor. Basically, better wine to get drunk faster. That culturally would have been a thing in the day, that one we do know and we do understand. 
You know, I think about it this way. Uh, I have a family that is fairly uh, diversified throughout the city now. I have a child who lives outside the house. Uh, I've got two that have jobs. Uh, you know, so like my family schedule isn't my own. And there are times that that's wonderful. There are times that Stephanie and I will find each other at home and it's like, hey, look, unexpected date night. It's just the two of us. And then there are times that everybody's together. They're increasingly rare, but we do enjoy them. And then at some point in the evening, it devolves into chaos. Yes, even with college, high school students, our family dinners still devolve into chaos. It just involves a little bit less picking the peas up off the floor. And there will come a point where I look at Stephanie and, and I'll say, this reminds me why we don't do this as much anymore. Because <laughs> they have their own thoughts and they argue with dad and they start picking on me. <laughs> All of them ganging up together if they're unified in something. Anyway. It devolves into chaos, and maybe your family feels that same way at times. Stephanie and I were talking about this illustration. We were br- both brushing our teeth this morning, getting ready for the day. And, and she said, by the way, I just want to make it clear. I actually enjoy family dinners more than you do when those moments happen. And I thought, I bet you do. They got your back. <laughs> They've got your back. What is happening? I really enjoy that. Yeah, well, I bet. It's great. Thanks, babe. It's confession. Um, but she was just saying, actually, that I think there's something about the difference in Stephanie and I. I enjoy those moments because I actually do reflect on them with fondness. But she enjoys being in the midst of them, fulfilling. And there's a difference in the two of us that's there. And that's not something wrong with that. I want to highlight that those are good differences. But if they create chaos, if they create division, and disunity, isn't that happening at our own table exactly like what Paul's describing here? As a matter of fact, the practice would have been for them to have a meal together, and either before the meal or after the meal, they would enjoy communion together. It was almost a spiritual element of their gathering together. And Paul uses some strong language when he's addressing these things. And I think it's important for us to understand that his strong language, his stern warnings remind us that our worship of Christ must honor his sacrifice. See, the good news for us is that Jesus secured our forgiveness by giving his body and by shedding his blood for us. And so this grace that we receive, this unmerited favor of God that is poured out to us, when we see that and when we understand it better, its beauty in our eyes becomes something that is irresistible to us. It draws us to it and it changes everything about how we see him, how we see ourselves, how it is. And it spills out through our lives and how we see and interact with others. When we remember through the Lord's Supper, we recall the greatest act of covenantal love. And we proclaim that over and over again, over one another and to a watching world, the power of the Lord's death to strengthen us until he comes again. See, just as our physical bodies need food, we see that represented in the bread. And just as our physical bodies need drink, especially in these summer days that are coming our direction, we see that in the cup. And just as food and drink sustain our bodies, this meal of remembrance sustains our faith. It sustains us until that day when he comes. 
And only through such faith-sustaining, transformational power are we able to give the highest honor to the least privileged among us. Are we able to put the good of others before our own needs? It's not demanding of one another, it's deferring to one another. And it's beautifully expressed, or at least it's supposed to be, through the church of God for His glory. Now there certainly are some challenging texts here. There's a warning in verse 27 about, uh, it, it kind of assumes on, it presupposes a desire to honor God and not profane Christ's work. But it calls us to examine ourselves and we're going to begin to transition into communion as we close out our service today. It calls us to examine ourselves. And it says, take the things that you understand about the word of God and the good news of the gospel and look at your own life. And it says, measure. Now we will always be found wanting against Christ, but he will always be enough to fill and to make up that difference. That's good news for us today, but what are we called to do? Let us examine ourselves now and see those things for ourselves as the Spirit reveals them to us so that we may repent and turn from those ways. So that we can actually be trained and discipled and disciplined in the truth. See, when we understand the grace of God, even the Lord's discipline isn't going to lead us to condemnation. The Lord's discipline will assure us that we are beloved children. When God reveals something in us, it's not saying you're not enough. It's saying I'm enough to overcome that and to give you the power to live for my glory. When we understand the grace of God rightly, it actually draws us into it more and more. It's irresistible to us. Stephanie and I had been living in Gainesville for about three years, and I recall a season when we had first moved back. I can take you back, Danny. I remember the table we were sitting at, the steak and ale, just across I-4, when you said to me, do you understand that the Lord is disciplining you right now? Those are sobering words. And the Lord took six to eight months disciplining me. See, our marriage, we'd been sweeping so many things under the rug, it was getting mighty lumpy to try to walk across. Our, our marriage was unstable. And the Lord disciplined me in the midst of that because of things that I had been neglecting in our home. Neglecting in my own heart. Neglecting in ways that I was using the gifts and talents and abilities that God had given me for my glory and not for His. The rug that we were sweeping things under in our own lives were becoming so lumpy that we were at an impasse with one another. I was telling Stephanie, I would rather be at work than home with you on a Saturday. I, I, wanted, to be, I wanted to escape. And the Lord sent me through six to eight months of just disciplining my heart, my thoughts, my actions toward my family. I, I recall that being a time when I was wrestling to understand the grace of God rightly. To literally be able to see how the grace of God could possibly apply to my own life. Perhaps you feel the same way today. See, I, I'm not standing up here because I'm saying I would really love to go through that again. I'm standing here to say I can't imagine my life without it. It was the beginning of me. Understanding grace. 
it was the beginning of me understanding mercy, how I deserved judgment and yet received grace, and it began to change me from the inside out in my life. You know what? That work is still going on. But see, those stern warnings, this discipline that, that this passage talks about surrounding the Lord's table, it teaches us something about the Savior that we're celebrating. It teaches us something about Him. It says that He desires our good even more than we do. You think, oh, hey, what? As much as we talk about selfishness and humility and, and putting on the things of Christ... No, what I'm talking about is when he is after things in our heart, he is saying, I actually desire your good more than you do. But he's going to redefine good along the way. He's going to redefine good as he is good. Christ-likeness. We see that in Romans chapter 8. All of these things are working together for our good. In the context of that passage, what is that good defined at? It is the good of being made into the image of Christ. And he is shaping us from the outside as he constrains certain of our actions. He is changing us from the inside out. Why? So that we may be the image of God to others. In the way that we were created to be. Living for his glory alone. And as we begin to prepare... Our ushers are in place. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you. As we begin to prepare to go into communion, our ushers have elements for you, but, but I just want to ask for your attention for one more thing because as we prepare to go into the next section of 1 Corinthians, I think it's important for us to understand this. That as we begin to understand the irresistible grace of God, as we see that becoming all the more beautiful to us as individuals in the gathered church, understanding the irresistible grace of God leads us to the healthiest expression of the irreplaceable gifts of God in the church. Let me say that again. When we understand the irresistible grace of God, it leads to the healthiest experience of the irreplaceable gifts of God that He freely gives by the Spirit to the glory of God through his church. In other words, if we want to be a spirit-filled church, let's start by rightly understanding the grace and the mercy of God.